All right, Jesse, last week's family murder mystery was truly wild. What's the story this week? An innocent couple vacationing in a beachside resort town befriends another couple, and the foursome set out for a night on the town. But soon, they find themselves drawn into a perverse, thrill-seeking lover's game that ends in unimaginable horror. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about nasty named pets, murderous bets, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you are enjoying this show, pretty please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. We had some real banger reviews this week. Oh my so. God, I know. So <laughs> cute. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. <laughs> Everyone, pardon my congestion this episode. I feel like I'm sick still. And I feel like when Jessie's sick, she has like this sexy raspy voice and I'm just like more nasally. So apologize in <laughs> I advance. you still sexy. You still no. have a sexy rasp. No. <laughs> I definitely don't. I sound more nasally than I already do. So apologies in advance. But if you're feeling bad for me because I'm sick and you want to support the show, you can just go right on over to Patreon and go to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod and you can learn all about the different tiers of support and how to get me a year supply of tissues with aloe in them because apparently you need those now when you're a mom. Yeah, you're uh, like one of those sad little dogs in a, there's a Sarah McLaughlin song playing behind you. You're weeping from an eye. For only $3 a month, you can get ad-free and early episodes and you can also give Andy some cold medicine. (laughs) (laughs) Please. Uh, Speaking of Patreon, We are thrilled, as always, to welcome our new set of wonderful patrons. A big thank you and welcome to... Welcome to Shanda B. and Rachel D. Lisa K. and Whitney S. Jessica S. and Aaron P. Jamie Y. and Crystal T. Victoria S. and Julia C. And finally, Lindsay C. Thank you, guys. Thank you to every one of you that is getting, Andy, the good kind of tissues with lotion in them. I mean... I feel like that's such a luxurious thing to have. Like even through this, I'm using wet wipes right now because my nose is like so sore, but I've been using toilet paper all week and I'm like, oh, it would have been good to get a box of tissues with aloe in it. (laughs) I think we're a generation that's just full on toilet paper people instead of tissue people. Yeah. I feel like when I'm at someone's house and they have real tissues, I'm like, wow, you're a classy (laughs) Like my mother-in-law has them and I forget and I like will be like blowing my nose with toilet paper and like the tissue box is right there staring accusingly at me. (laughs) Bitch, this is what I'm here for. Okay, wow. This is like a lot more chatter than we usually have right at the beginning of the episode. If you are new to the show, we like to jump right into the episode. So I think we indulged a little because Andy's feeling ill. But yeah, let's get to it. What do you say, Andy? Por favor. On May 25th, 2002, Jeannie Crutchley and her live-in boyfriend, Joshua Ford, took in the warm glow of a coastal sunset 
as they prepared to board a bus to the local night spots in Ocean City, Maryland. It was the beginning of what was sure to be a fun holiday weekend. Jeannie and Joshua loved to have a good time, but they were also very responsible, hence taking the bus to avoid drinking and driving later on. And they made a striking couple. Joshua was very tall with dark hair. He was a good-looking guy. Jeannie was slim, blonde, and pretty. And Jeannie was noticeably older than her younger beau. She was actually 19 years older than Joshua. Wow. It's kind of common. We see it a lot in the gender reverse. We see a lot of older men. But yeah, Jeannie looked and acted a lot younger. Not that that matters. She doesn't have to. I mean, you can find love however you want to find love. But they just were on a very similar wavelength. Yeah, I think that that's important if you are dating someone who's decades younger than you to have similar personality traits in regards to how you act. Yes. And they had the similar energy. They liked the same things. And people who knew them said that they were as in love as newlyweds, despite having already been together for two and a half years and living together for quite a while. Both Jeannie and Josh also had gotten a second chance at love. They were both previously married, so they were not going to waste a second of their lives. They just wanted to be together and be happy. The bus screeched to a stop after a few blocks, and newcomers stepped aboard. Joshua watched as a young couple dug through their pockets for exact change. The woman was small. She was darkly tanned with cropped curly hair, and her husband was at least a foot taller, well-built and handsome with a buzz cut. And he carried himself like he had been in the military, which Joshua would know about because he had been in the army himself. The couple seemed a little off kilter, maybe a few too many vacation cocktails. And they were upset to find out that the bus driver would not break a $5 bill for them. So he just kept saying exact change. I can only take exact change. So the couple's kind of like scrambling. They're going through their pockets. They're going through her pocketbook. And Joshua and Jeannie had been watching this for a little bit and Eventually, Joshua just leapt up and he was like, hey, are you two going to Secrets, which I guess was this big like bar slash club in the area. And it's, by the way, guys, Secrets, S-E-A, like as in the sea. Secrets. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like most of the people on this bus were going. And he's like, here, I'll get it for you. I'll take care of it. We're going there, too. And there was a seat open next to Joshua and Jeannie. So this young couple who was named Erica and BJ Sifrit ended up sitting next to them and they started chatting and they were like, thanks so much. We'll buy you guys around at the bar when we get there. And they seemed like a little tipsy. It turns out that they had been at Hooters before they got on the bus and they had had a couple pictures and some wings as you do when you're on vacation. Yep. And so Jeannie and Josh just thought they were, like, fun. They're like, it's cute. Like, they were, like, 24 years old, the younger couple. Jeannie and Josh at this point are, like, you know, 32 and 50, just about around that age range. So they're like, oh, they're young. They're on vacation. They're having a good time. And that's what life is about. So the night ended up going on and on and on. And they ended up buying shots for each other and having a great time, drinking and dancing. And then suddenly it ended. And it ended in a shocking, surprising, and gruesome, truly gruesome murder. Two of the four vibrant people who met on that bus would not survive the night. Whoa. And the other two would be the ones responsible for the heinous bloodshed. So this is a super brutal case that devolves into a he said, she said account of dark desires, monumental mistakes, and I believe the type of chemistry that can turn two otherwise ordinary individuals 
into stone cold killers. So big thanks to Jamie M. for this recommendation, as well as referring to me to the main source material used for the episode. I used the book Cruel Death by M. William Phelps. We've done a lot of books by him. Yep. And Jamie actually is a longtime listener, and she has recommended some very good cases. She is the one who recommended the Mary Jane Fonder episode. Yep. Remember the crazy, like, obsessed with the pastor lady who had the wig that looked just like her hair? Oh, I remember. (laughs) I think everyone remembers. Everyone remembers. That was a crazy case. Thanks, Jamie, for just another insane story. There's also a snapped killer couples about this episode, too, which you guys could check out by Googling if you need to know, DM me, and I'll find the exact episode number. And there's also some very graphic and disturbing imagery that will come up in this episode. But it's only in a few small parts, and I will definitely give you a trigger warning as we approach those sections. Appreciate it. All right. So we're going to kick off first by talking about the happy couple, Joshua and Jeannie, first. Martha Marjean Crutchley, who went by Jeannie, had met Joshua Ford at a Christmas party in Boston in 1999. They had pretty instant chemistry despite the age difference. So yes, when this story takes place, Jeannie was 51 and Josh was 32. I think they were like 49 and 30-ish when they met. And they just clicked. They were both very active professionals. Jeannie was an insurance executive accountant and Joshua was a mortgage banker. They were both giving and kind. Joshua volunteered with the Salvation Army and led youth groups. And they both, like I said, had been divorced. Joshua had divorced his high school sweetheart after many years together and one six-year-old son who was, by everyone's account, his reason for living. And Jeannie had ended her marriage amicably as well. So these two people had very positive relationships with their ex-spouses. The couple didn't take long after meeting to commit to one another, and they moved to Virginia where they enjoyed the nicer weather than cold Boston Yep, and the proximity to incredible beachside vacation spots. So they had what sounds like the most relaxing lifestyle. Like they both worked hard during the week, but on the weekends, if they didn't have Joshua's son, of course, they would garden, they planted trees, they would plan vacations all the time, just like weekend little trips to various hot spots and beach spots. Cute. Yeah, and it just sounds like it was a very comforting way of living. It's almost like a weekend retired way of living versus at that age at 32, you're usually like grinding, 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 you know? Yep. And I think that this was something that was very welcomed by Joshua and his family because they had gone through considerable heartbreak. Joshua's family had suffered tremendous tragedy only eight months earlier for when this episode takes place. In the fall of 2001, Joshua's 23-year-old niece, Kelly, the daughter of his brother, Mark Ford, had gone missing after leaving a Massachusetts rehab center and she had disappeared without a trace. Oh, no. Yep. So I got details about this in Boston Magazine's article by Elizabeth Dinan. It was called Death and the Maidens from May 2006. But what happened was that Kelly had a four-year-old daughter, but unfortunately she was addicted to heroin and she was trying to get clean and sober for her daughter. And she was doing very well at this rehab facility while her parents cared for her child. 
And she was doing so well that they were sending her to a job interview on a bus. And there's witnesses that say that she must have gotten off in the wrong place because she went into a proprietor's store and asked him if she was in the right town and where she was in location to where she was supposed to go to this job interview. And he was like, oh, no, you're in the wrong place. You got to, like, go back out, get back on the bus. It's going to take a while. And she's like, oh, man, I'm going to miss my job interview. This sucks. She's like, oh, well. So she ostensibly left to go back to the rehab center and was never seen again. Crazy. Yep. Until 80 days later when Kelly's decapitated body was discovered buried in a shallow grave on the Cape Cod shoreline. Oh, my God. Not only had she been beheaded, the killer had also cut out her heart. What? Yeah. So no arrest has ever been made directly in connection to the murder. And at the time that we're talking about Joshua and Jeannie, the family, I had absolutely no idea what had happened to her. And of course, in situations where the victims are sex workers or recovering drug addicts, there's so much less attention paid to them and to their stories. But later on, it would come out that they believed that Kelly was perhaps murdered by a serial killer named Eugene McCollum, who was convicted of murdering a sex worker and another man. The unidentified sex worker's head was cut off and her heart was removed in exactly the same way. And there were two other women besides Kelly so four women total that were found in areas where he was residing at the time with the same MO, with the same injuries, being beheaded and having their heart missing. So that guy is in jail for life, but they have not ever formally charged him with the additional murders. So you can imagine what this family has been through. This is his niece. His grandniece is living with his brother and sister-in-law. So I think for Joshua, being with Jeannie, living in Virginia, having some separation from a lot of this heaviness and this tragedy was healthy. And it was a good reminder that you need to hold your loved ones tight. You need to embrace every day. You should never take a single moment for granted, which I think is why you know, even though there was a big age difference, it was like, I love you. You love me. Like, what are we going to let this hold us back? Let's just be together and be happy day to day and not think about anything else. So that's pretty much where their hearts and feelings were on this day, which was over Memorial Day weekend, 2002, when they rented a condo at the Atlantis, which was a high rise building right on the strip with views of the Atlantic Ocean. So they're going to have a good time over Memorial Day weekend. On Saturday, May 25th, they boarded the bus to ride the two miles down to Secrets when they ran into BJ and Erica, who, like I said, were 24 years old. The couple had been day drinking at their favorite restaurant, Hooters. So it was clear that BJ and Erica were a little tipsy, but this was Saturday of a holiday weekend. It's a vacation town. They're young. So Joshua and Jeannie first just thought they're a party. They're just a good time. BJ made good on his promise to buy the couple drinks, and Erica followed up with a round of shots. As the night went on, both couples ended up getting fairly intoxicated. But no one more than young Erica. Erica had anxiety, like a legit anxiety disorder, and had been prescribed Xanax. But Erica did not just take the drug medically. She also enjoyed it recreationally. Oh, no. 
and also the feeling that she got when she paired it with alcohol, which intensifies the effects. Yep. Especially of alcohol. So she was snorting it that night. No. Yeah, that will wipe you right out. As the night wound down, the couples decided they wanted to keep the party going. And Erica and BJ invited Joshua and Jeannie to the penthouse condo that they were staying in at the time. They were there for 10 days. It was actually a condo that belonged to a friend of Erica's father. So I believe they were getting this place for free and it was supposed to be absolutely gorgeous. So they were like, yeah, we're staying in this amazing place. You can come over. We can like smoke a little pot. We can have more drinks. We can hop into the hot tub. So they're like, yeah, this sounds great. Let's go for it. So it was around 2.30 in the morning or so when all four of the individuals went up to the room number 1101 together. And though all four went in, only two people came out again. Joshua Ford and Jeannie Crutchley would never be seen alive ever again. Oh, my God. On May 29th, four days after that fateful bus ride, Jeannie's coworkers would report her and Joshua missing after confirming with Joshua's employer that neither had returned to work on Tuesday as scheduled. So what happened to Joshua and Jeannie and who the hell are BJ and Erica? So let's back up a little bit and talk about the other couple at play in this situation. Erica Grace was born on February 3rd, 1978, the only child of Mitch and Cookie Grace. She was raised just outside of Roaring Spring, Pennsylvania, where Mitch ran an incredibly successful construction business. He was very wealthy, but he was also a self-made man. He started working essentially as a construction worker and worked his way up until he owned an entire business that constructed these huge high-rise buildings. In fact, the one that they were staying at was owned by a friend of his, but I believe Erica at least claimed that her father had built the entire building. Okay. Yep. Which is possible. I just didn't verify that. Erica was considered coddled and spoiled by her parents, but also pushed incredibly hard to succeed academically and athletically. So even though she was spoiled, there was still large expectations that she would perform in other ways. She was a very talented basketball player, so Mitch put a lot of resources behind making sure that she had the best of the best and the best opportunities to succeed in basketball. She got private coaching. He put an indoor basketball court in their mansion. I mean, the works. For instance, when Erica wasn't given enough playing time, instead of continually complaining to the coaches, he moved the entire family to another town where he could be sure he could secure her more playing time. I, like, feel like I knew parents like this growing up. Yes! That makes sense, like, where you were from in Ohio. In the Midwest. Well, Illinois. Yes, Illinois. Yeah, because you were born in Alabama, but then you lived in Illinois from when I was like one to 15 and then Ohio from like 16 to 18, 15 to 18. Yeah, I feel like the town I lived in in Ohio, people moved to for that reason. It's just such a like a Midwest vibe. Yeah, thing to do for like more playing time on a sports team. So they were really involved in helping her out. I think that there's a bit of a helicopter parent situation going on here for sure. And not in a good Andy helicopter way. No, we were just on our shout out to our patrons that were on the watch party with us. We were just talking about how Andy is not just a helicopter parent. She's a (laughs) helicopter friend. She's my Andy copter. I am guilty. Very guilty. (laughs) She, Mm -hmm. She takes care of me and everybody else. 
Yeah, so they were a bit of a bit of a helicopter parents. And I think that there was some issues in the family because her mother was pretty strict and her dad her dad was more prone to being the one who wanted to spoil her a little bit more. But she worked hard. I mean, she was an honor student. She ended up getting a partial scholarship to college. But when she got to college, she just really could not compete on the collegiate level. She just was not tall enough. It didn't matter if she had all the training in the world, all the private coaching, all the practice. At some level, if you're, you know, I think she was like 5'4 or something, you're not going to be able to compete on a college level with other basketball players. So I think when she got to college, she was just a little bit lost. It seemed like she had spent her whole life having somebody else be like, these are the goalposts and here's where you have to arrive and telling her how to achieve and how she could and helping her achieve. Now she doesn't have basketball and she's kind of on her own. And I think it left her feeling directionless and insecure. So Erica had always revered her parents' strong marriage. She was inspired by it, but she was also resentful of their closeness. She was frustrated that her dad would always choose her mother over her. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's the way it's babe, supposed to be. You have to be united front. how yeah. it's supposed to be. And that's the only reason that you're here. Mm-hmm. So she said, like, I'm in awe of my parents' marriage. They've been so happily married for so long. They're such a strong unit. But it left me feeling left out because she's an only child. She was like, I feel like I'm on the outside. And I do think she wanted to, like, take the attention away from her mother and have her father pay more attention to her almost. She needs a lot of attention. This is going to be clear. Whether it's nature or nurture, I do not know with Erica. Did her mom not give her the attention that she needed either? She did. Everyone said that her parents were lovely. Like all of her high school classmates and friends and people who knew the family said she had two very involved, loving parents that cared for her very deeply. Throughout what happens in this story, they're very supportive of her no matter what. Everyone said that they don't know why she needed so much attention. They said her mother was a little bit strict, but it didn't sound like punitively so. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of a a mystery why she felt so unbelievably insecure. And again, we never know what's going on behind closed doors. But they seemed like a very solid family. And I think that Erica was really looking for a partner because of this. Like, okay, I have a great example of what a marriage should be, only when I have a partner— They're going to choose me over everything else. Like, I'm going to get the love and attention my mother gets from my father if I get married. And so at a pretty early age, she was already looking for somebody pretty serious. And when she met Benjamin B.J. Sifrit in a Virginia bar in 1999 at the age of 21, she believed she had found him. B.J. was born on October 21st, 1977, the oldest of two kids who were born to salt-of-the-earth Midwesterners, speaking of Midwesterners. Just like his future wife, B.J. excelled in sports. He was a competitive swimmer who also worked as a lifeguard and a swimming instructor. He was clever and hardworking. He often worked more than one job while he was still in high school and still getting pretty good grades. And one side job that he had that he completely excelled at and probably enjoyed the most was working for a locksmith. It was said that there wasn't a lock that you could find that BJ could not pick. Wow. This was his Rubik's Cube. I mean, he could pick any lock. Like I'm talking later on, we're going to talk about some of the more problematic things he gets into with this lock picking. 
But it was like chain stores at night. He could pick their locks like anywhere, anything. Wow. So after high school graduation, BJ decided that he wanted to pursue a career in the military. BJ tested through the roof on his recruiting test. He qualified for Navy SEAL training, which is very serious. I mean, it's like some of the best of the best. And he would be in their nuclear engineering program. Wow. Yeah, I mean, this is tops, tops. And unbelievably, BJ was the best of those best. Only 18 out of the 160 recruits that were in his class graduated the program. 18 out of 160. Wow. And BJ was the honor man, meaning he was the top of his class. Well, according to M. William Phelps' book, Cruel Death, that was not all he was good at. Several of BJ's former SEAL peers later reported that he could spend all night drinking at a bar, get home at three in the morning, sleep for maybe two hours, and then show up for drills and have absolutely no trouble running 10 miles and doing all of the obstacle courses or anything else that they needed to do. Jeez Louise. Yep. And his like SEAL partners or teammates or whatever said that they would be like heading off to bed at like 8 p.m. and they were like drinking energy shakes and they were trying to fill their bodies with like protein and rice cakes in order to get ahead and they just could not believe this guy would be like out absolutely shit-faced like all night and then kick all their asses. Wow. Yeah. So he obviously had some serious physical endurance. And I think there was a little like that mind over matter, which is I did this to myself and I'm not going to let anyone down just because I decided to go out drinking and it's just put my mind over matter. So he was broken down physically and also emotionally. And then he was essentially rebuilt as the perfect seal. He also spoke about some necessary but pretty traumatizing medic training. So they did these exercises so that the medics in the field do not look at these injured individuals as their partners and teammates. And you guys are going to laugh at me if you're in the military because you're like, you know, fellow soldiers or whatever. Why are you calling them partners? (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I mean? Like you can't look at like this is your best friend in your division or whatever if they're like losing blood, if their guts are hanging out of them, if there's a missing leg. Like you have to just look at it as almost like a structural or engineering issue that needs to be fixed, like as if you were fixing a machine. Yeah. Okay. You will be too emotionally caught up in this if you're looking at them like they're your best friend. Yep. And so they did all of these like really rough training exercises from having like movie style makeup to make people look like their guts were hanging out of them to one exercise that sounds real screwed up, but I guess it's necessary. He said that there was one training exercise they had where essentially they brought in several live goats and intentionally maimed or hurt them. And then they had BJ's unit try to save the goats' lives. Wait, that's fucked up. And like, I feel like PETA would not be on board with this. Okay, this is, guys, I'm just saying, I don't want to get in trouble with PETA here, but this is um, from a story that BJ told... And it is in Cruel Death by M. William Phelps. And he said that none of the goats survived. So they murdered a bunch of poor goats. Yeah, it sounds like it was painful, too, if they weren't killed right away, obviously. Yeah. So, yeah, this is where his psyche is at. That's what I'm trying to say, is that these were some of the things that he went through that made him what he was. 
Obviously, BJ learned how to compartmentalize, and he flourished in his three years in the military. He was top of just about everything. He earned a good conduct medal. He earned expert marksmanship status. And then he met Erica, and it all went downhill. So the couple met in a bar in the spring of 1999, but they did not end up dating until July. So I think that they kept in touch, but I don't know what their situation was. And then when they finally saw each other and got together, it was instant. Only three weeks after they officially started dating, they eloped in Vegas. Well, I mean, the end of the world was coming in like six months. So. Y2K, baby. <laughs> you got to get with somebody to love. Hunker down in the bunker. Yeah, this is like a love murder red flag for both of us. Way too fast, like me, and eloped in Vegas, like you. Like me. (laughs) (laughs) A couple red flags right there. So apparently Erica's parents had met BJ briefly before they were married, but they were still disappointed about how everything went down. Mitch loved his daughter so much. I mean, she was daddy's little girl in every conceivable way. And he had wanted to throw his only child a really big wedding and walk her down the aisle, do the whole thing. And instead, she ran off to Vegas and married some guy that she barely knew, and he definitely barely knew. And BJ's family was equally perplexed. They did not even know that Erica existed or that he was dating anyone at all until he called and said, guess what, I'm married to this person you've never even heard about. Well, Erica transferred schools so she could be closer to BJ's base, but it soon became apparent that she was not cut out to be a military spouse. Erica had been diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder as well as an anxiety disorder, and she could not handle not knowing where BJ was, who he was with, or what he was doing, which does not bode well for him going on deployment or so many of the things that people in the military have to do. Yeah. Yes. A friend of BJ said that she really couldn't even handle life together when they were on base, when he was home with her. She said that one time she was at their house and I think it was like her boyfriend or husband, the witness is boyfriend or husband, went out with BJ to go like pick some stuff up. And when they hadn't come home at exactly the time that they thought they'd be home by, it was like 10 minutes extra. She started freaking out. She was like screaming. She was calling him a million times. She was throwing things. And this was just him being 10 minutes late for something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, things got worse when BJ had to report for cold weather training in Alaska. This was supposed to be treated like a mission, this cold weather training. It's almost like a mock mission, it sounded like. And they were absolutely not supposed to tell anyone where they were going or what they were doing. And this was a remote and supposedly secret location where they were training. But lo and behold, one of BJ's superior officers found Erica in BJ's bed in Alaska during this training. She had Uh, insisted that he tell her where he was going and that she meet him up and she be with him while he was at this training. That's like a big no-no, isn't it? Oh, huge no-no, huge no-no. He was in trouble. And what's more was that there was evidence that BJ and Erica had taken morphine for fun from BJ's medic bag. Oh, my God. So BJ obviously got into a lot of trouble for this, and it only went downhill from there. Erica would later report that in the first year of the couple's marriage, they were using cocaine and ecstasy five times a week. What? Five times a week. Whoa. It's like when people are like, 
I drink wine five times a week. I'm like, ah, oh, me too. And I should really cut back. But that's cocaine and ecstasy five times a week. Yeah, that's like there's literally a hole burned into your brain. Yeah. And your nose. <laughs> this is so true. That's so true. Yeah. So Erica eventually put so much pressure on BJ to leave the military that he agreed. And the two harebrained idiots concocted a plan to get BJ tossed out of the Navy. So this is what they say later. We don't know whether he just behaved this badly and he got thrown out or it's what he says later, which is, I wanted to be with my wife. She wasn't happy. She didn't want to be apart. She wanted me to be with her all the time. So we just decided that I would screw up until they kicked me out, essentially. In August of 2000, BJ left his post, which he obviously wasn't allowed to do. And then when a staff sergeant caught him and told him he had to get back to where he was supposed to be, he told the guy to go fuck himself. Oh. Yeah, which doesn't fly in the military. I would assume not. Yes. And I think he did it to another officer and he was eventually court-martialed. So only days after he had gone through this first admonishment for what he did, he ended up driving through the check-in gate of the base at a speed of 50 miles per hour. So this is the gate where they like, you pull up, you stop, some, like somebody checks you in. And when he did this, I mean, he could have run over the Marines that were working. He's on drugs, right? I think so, yes. Yeah. I mean, this seems like very erratic behavior. Well, he later says like, oh, this was all a plan because I wanted them to kick me out of the military. Okay. Why don't you just leave then? I, I don't know what the deal is with when you can leave and if you have to like do X amount of years of service or what the contract is. But for whatever reason, he later contends that this was all a plan and he was doing this on purpose to immediately get let out of the Navy. Well, I'll look into that when I look into the animal rights details <laughs> with the military yes. later. <laughs> you can let us know. You can have an update. But yeah, so he left and then he came in and he did the same thing when he came back in. I guess he was going to get a haircut. And when he came back from his haircut, he did the same exact thing 50 miles in. And they were like, okay, you're going to the brig, which is the prison yeah. in the military system. So we're throwing you in prison right now. So he's in the brig and his mother, Elizabeth, flew into town to hire a lawyer and try to get her son out of military jail. But she found that his wife, Erica, this woman that she definitely did not know very well, and at this time, I think they'd been married for like just short of a year, that she was like impossible to deal with. When she first got there, she was like obviously on a lot of drugs. She was hysterical. She wasn't helpful. She was aggressive. She was rude. So Elizabeth's doing everything she can to save her son and try to help him make sure he has legal representation. She is trying to make sure he is not thrown out of the Navy SEAL program. Well, obviously, Erica wants the opposite, and they ended up getting into a huge fight, and Erica pulled a gun on her mother-in-law. Whoa. A, how did she have a gun? BJ really liked his guns, and I know he gave Erica at least one handgun, but maybe more. Wow. Mm -hmm. So Erica pulled the gun out on her mother-in-law, Elizabeth, and Elizabeth locked herself in a bedroom and called 911. But ultimately, no charges were filed on Erica. After 90 days, BJ was let out of the brig and he was booted from the Navy with a bad conduct discharge. And this was the guy that I think only a year or so before had won the highest medal for good conduct. But Erica had gotten what she wanted. She had her husband all to herself now. 
So Erica and BJ moved back to Altoona, Pennsylvania, where her parents were living, and her dad set them up with a scrapbooking business, which was apparently one of Erica's passions. She loved scrapbooking, and I didn't know it, but I guess scrapbooking stores are like a thing because they were looking at starting one in Virginia, and they were like, oh, there's already too many here, (laughs) so we have to go back to Pennsylvania. What year is this? Right now, it's like around year 2000, 2001. I feel like that makes sense. I mean, I feel like scrapbooking was really big before everything was online. Yeah, like I have a bunch of scrapbooks, but I was in high school. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. It feels a little different, yeah. But lest you guys think that this is like a wife makes the upstanding guy go bad scenario, it is not. BJ was a huge asshole before Erica too. He was just an asshole who was good at performing. And now he wasn't. Erica would later report that BJ was deeply psychologically abusive and he would, after their first year of marriage, maybe because he was resentful that she had made him leave the military, she didn't know why he would do this, but after their first year of marriage and after he left the SEALs, he would do things deliberately to try to exacerbate her mental health conditions. He knew she had OCD and he would call her and be like, did you lock the door? Oh my God, that's so fucked up. Yeah, did you leave the stove on? I'm pretty sure the stove's on. You have to go back home. Or like, you know, when she was like performing her rituals that made her feel better, he would like interrupt her. And like, there was just really screwed up stuff that she claimed he did and making terrible comments about her looks or her weight to the point where she definitely developed an eating disorder. She said that he made her take a ton of like diet pills or like speed because he wanted her thinner and thinner. She also claimed that BJ had forced her to have an abortion, saying that if she did not end the pregnancy that he had claimed earlier he had wanted before they got pregnant, that he would, quote, cut it out of her. Oh. Now, a neighbor disputes this. So there was a neighbor that they had, I think when they were living in Virginia or North Carolina, that said that she was pregnant at the time, so they had been talking about their pregnancies together or what their pregnancies like would be like together. And Erica told her one day that she had gotten an abortion and she said almost essentially that it was her idea and that she had talked to her therapist about it and they decided it was for the best because BJ was doing all of this coke and ecstasy and he was out of it. And so he wasn't really ready to be a good parent and neither was she. So they had mutually decided to have this abortion. So she is saying the story later. Other people are coming forward saying, I don't think it was exactly that. I think that... We have to remember, too, that if they're actually on hard drugs five out of seven of the days of the week, there's no balance of normalcy. Like everything is heightened. Everything is exacerbated. Everything is dramatic. Everything is like really intense. So I feel like I don't know if we can believe anything that they're both claiming during that time. I agree. I agree with you completely, Andy. And yeah, the next thing I was going to say is that It's hard to know if everything Erica said about BJ is the truth, but it is not actually hard to confirm in the very least that BJ was a racist, bigoted piece of shit. Now, why is that? Well, you might ask. Why? How can we know this for sure? People seeing it firsthand who were not on drugs five out of seven days a week. He also did all of us a solid and got a huge swastika tattooed on his chest. What? I mean, this swastika, I'm not joking. It's on, this is a big guy. It's on his chest. It's like the size of my hand, this swastika. Giant, not a little one. 
who would even tattoo that on someone? Yeah. So as their once promising lives unraveled, apparently BJ became obsessed with neo-Nazism and white supremacy. Wow. Yeah. The couple also began keeping these like giant ass snakes as pets. And like real snakes? Oh, huge ass snakes. Like Britney Spears in that music video style snakes. And I guess they also had a crocodile. I would go ahead and say that this is probably they're not legal to have. They're probably exotic. In Pennsylvania? Yeah. Yeah. They also had some very interesting names for their snakes. They named their cobra Hitler. I didn't think you were going that way. Oh, oh, yeah. This took a turn. (laughs) This took a very dark turn. Dark turn. Do you think it was just all the drugs? Like, were their parents? Like, what happened? So I read a lot about... Erica's parents. They participated in the making of the book. They're interviewed. They spent a lot of time with this author. M. Williams Phelps says that Mitch is a really decent, good guy who loved his kid. And and nobody knows how this went so far off the rails. And he didn't write a lot. I think Elizabeth BJ's mother participated maybe. But I didn't hear anything about his father, but I knew they were still married. And, like, he described them as salt of the earth, Midwesterners with good values. Okay. So I feel like there would have been some sort of undertone of those values maybe being in their home from when he was a kid. You know what I mean? So the fact that that didn't exist, it's like this has to just be from drug use. It has to be from being in, like, a tunnel vision. Yeah. Yeah. They were going down a very violent rabbit hole with one another. And also with their snake, Hitler. Well, they have quite a few snakes. At one point, they say they have like three snakes, but I heard a bunch of different names, so I don't know if some of the snakes passed away. There was another snake named Swastika as well, so on theme. And then they also had a large snake named HIV. What was the crocodile? I don't know what the crocodile was. Maybe the crocodile was Swastika. They also had a pair of pythons that they named Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, apparently that was who these jokers thought they were. I feel so bad for these snakes. Yeah. The snakes, it wasn't their fault that they had these horrific names. They thought that they were like these badasses or these murderous jerks. Like their favorite movies were natural born killers and true romance. When a Coke dealer ripped them off, BJ told Erica he was going to kill this person and dissolve their body in acid. And to try to figure out how long that would take, he actually took one of the live rats that they fed their snakes and dissolved its body in acid. And this was confirmed by a neighbor. So was he going to do cross-division to figure out how long it was going to take a human body? Was that what he was going to do? A lot of multiplication. Rat, three hours. Rat weighed five pounds. Human, (laughs) 200 pounds over X. Oh my God, five pound rat? That's a giant rat, Andy. Five pounds? Hey, I only, see, I only see New York City rats and they're about five <gasps> pounds. True. It's because they're eating all that pizza. Those yeah. pizza rats. <laughs> so a neighbor confirmed that because they found the box and they were like, what is that? It stinks. Why is this out here? Get rid of it. And Eric was like, oh, BJ just dissolved a rat in acid. Casual Sunday conversation at the trash cans. Can you imagine if that was your neighbor? So obviously at this point, they're doing a lot of drugs. They're ratcheting up their behavior. Erica also reported that 
BJ was losing interest in having sex with her. She was saying that he couldn't really get excited by normal things anymore. The high of the sex of the drugs just wasn't enough to get him off anymore. So according to Erica, BJ needed more. He needed adrenaline. So the couple started intentionally getting into police chases. Like they're like speeding. And then when when the cop tries to pull them over, they just like floor it. They also started breaking and entering because he was good at picking locks. Their favorite joint to hit was Hooters. They would steal from Hooters as well. (laughs) They'd go spend money there and then they'd steal the money back. It's even worse than that because I'm pretty sure that all of the money is taken out or gone to the bank. At night, they would steal the merchandise, Sandy. They would steal like the Hooters shirts and hats and cigarettes and anything that you could buy at a Hooters. They would just clean out the Hooters. So then they'd be like literally head to toe Hooters paraphernalia. Yes, guys, there's so many pictures of Erica wearing so much Hooters. You shut your face. Are you serious? Dead serious. I'm dead serious. Like, she's really into Hooters. There's, like, pictures of her with the Hooters girls smiling. A lot. A lot of them. But, Andy, what they did is I don't think that the scrapbook business was making them a lot of money. So they were selling the Hooters merchandise on eBay. I guess they were making like somewhere between $1,500 to $2,500 a week selling Hooters merchandise on eBay. The thing was, this is just for thrill-seeking. Like even though I was joking about their scrapbooking business, they didn't really need money because Erica's dad had shit tons of money and he would have given them anything they needed. So this is just for fun. They're just doing it for fun. For the adrenaline. Yes. Well, it would be this bizarre fixation with knocking off Hooters restaurants that would eventually spell the end for the bargain bin Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, my God. You did not. Uh, On May 31st, 2002, three days after Josh and Jeannie had been reported missing, police officers were called to a break-in in progress at a Hooters restaurant in Winchester, Virginia, which is about a four-hour drive from Ocean City, where we last left off with this story. Can't stop, won't stop. <laughs> it's true. So back in Ocean City, the police had searched Joshua and Jeannie's condo, but there was absolutely no sign of foul play at all. It just looked like they had just opened up their suitcases, and they had had a glass of wine, and then they had headed out for the night. Because they had met strangers on a bus, no one knew who they were with. Like none of their loved ones knew who they might have been with. And nobody else who was like at that club that night would know any of their names. No, think about how many times we've done this when we've gone out. Oh my gosh, so many times. Think about the after parties we went to when we were bartending or serving in Boston. And we'd like meet some cool chick and be like, yeah, after party at your house for sure. And you're just two couples, so you're not thinking. It's not like you're alone as a girl and some sketchy guy or even alone as a couple girls and a sketchy guy. This is just they seem like a super nice couple. So, yeah, so no one could put together what happened to them other than they were on that bus and then they went out to Secrets and then it just was like they they just disappeared. So they looked into their exes, of course, and Jeannie's ex-husband was kind of, I think, put through the ringer. But by all accounts, the exes had a great relationship and he definitely had an airtight alibi. The same was true for Joshua's ex. So the Ocean City PD were basically like, we're going to post missing persons posters all over the place in nightclubs, in bars, where they might have been hanging out. And we're going to notify police departments in all of the 
jurisdictions and even the nearby states to see if they can come across any information that would lead to finding out where this lovely couple who are 3150 at this point, so not exactly who you'd think of as endangered or runaways, where they might have ended up. So at that point, their only hope is just somebody would come forward with a lead or the murderers or kidnappers would fuck up and get caught. Well, fuck up and get caught is what they did. Spectacularly. BJ and Erica had tripped a silent alarm while ripping off this Virginia Hooters and had absolutely no idea. So the cops had literally caught them in the act, taking out these racks of cigarettes and carrying Hooters merch to their Jeep. So they were immediately arrested, of course. Erica began to have a panic attack. So she's arrested and she's sitting on the curb handcuffed with her hands behind her and she is freaking out and she told one of the cops that she had an anxiety disorder and she needed her medication which was Xanax which um M William Phelps wrote that she had actually been like doing lines of Xanax all night so she was like I haven't had my medicine all day and he's like yeah that wasn't true but regardless of whether or not she'd had Xanax that day she told the cop that she needed her medication from her purse and she needed it now because she was having a full-blown panic attack. So the guy was like, of course, it's medical. I'll get it for you. But with something like this, other than what they can see, which is like the shit that's in their trunk, right? They don't have permission to search their personal items. Like just because they're being arrested right now doesn't mean that this guy can go through her purse. So he's like, you have to consent to a search because essentially if I'm digging my hand in your purse, I'm in your purse and you have to say that you consent to me searching your purse to get your medication. So she agreed and the officer ends up like digging in her purse to find the prescription bottle. And while he's doing that, he ends up pulling out two IDs, the driver's licenses of Joshua Ford and Martha Jeannie Crutchley. No way. Now, this was still like four hours away from Ocean City, but luckily this veteran police officer was totally up on bulletins and missing people in the surrounding areas miraculously because I don't think this is required. And he recognized them as the couple that had gone missing in Ocean City and so immediately knew that Erica and BJ had done something far more sinister than just ripping off a Hooters. This is also like just crazy. Cause like I said, they wouldn't have been able to search her purse normally. So the fact that she just was like, please go search my purse. I need a Xanax. Like give me my Xanax. Yeah, search my purse and find evidence that we just maybe murdered someone. Which is also to your point, what you talked about is that they're just not thinking straight. No. That they're completely warped right now. Were they going to try to steal their identity? Is that why they took their IDs? The consensus about why they took these IDs was because they were trophies. Yeah, I was hoping it was something more (laughs) significant, but that was my second guess, yeah. Later it came up like that was a possibility, like that BJ was maybe like, oh, let's take their IDs and their social security cards in case we want to use them for something. But For Erica, it seemed it was more of a trophy situation. Wow. Yeah. So they were hauled off to the police station for questioning, and the rest of the car was at that point searched. Beyond the stolen Hooters goods, the police also found a loaded forty-five caliber handgun, a bag of zip-tie handcuffs, gloves, and ski masks. 
So at that point, they're like, shit, these zip ties mean that we might have a kidnapping. All of this stuff looks consistent with people who are holding someone hostage. So they thought that Joshua and Jeannie might be being held against their will somewhere. Well, due to this evidence, the Ocean City police were able to use a special circumstance clause in the law to be able to immediately enter BJ and Erica's condo back in Ocean City, the one that they had been staying at for 10 days. And they could do so without waiting for a search warrant because they believed that there might be live victims possibly needing medical care in that home. So they brought the paramedics with them. So they're like busting in there detectives, fire department, EMTs, like the whole thing, because they were very concerned that they could have been very badly injured in the home. And unfortunately, they did not find Jeannie and Joshua alive or at all. They were not there. They did, however, find two spent bullets with blood and human tissue that was just sitting out on the coffee table. So with that, they now had probable cause and were able to get a legit search warrant. And when they did so, they found Jeannie and Josh's Atlantis room key, the key to their condo. They also found a ton of blood in the bathroom of the condo. It looked like there was some blood dripping alongside the vanity. So the technicians actually ripped the vanity out and they found dark, thick, dried blood that was actually still sticky in some areas all around the floorboards. Whoa. Yeah. So there was a lot of bloodshed that had occurred in this bathroom, and it seemed like it had been isolated to the bathroom. Then when they dismantled the sink in the bathroom, they horrifyingly found pieces of scalp with dark hairs still attached. Oh, God, Jesse. As well as fresh blood. Yeah. Additionally, they found paint and paint rollers, and it looked like BJ and Erica had been painting the walls and had even replaced the bathroom door. Now, they don't live there. They're not even renting this place. They're there for a 10-day vacation, so there is no reason why they would be making improvements upon this vacation rental. Okay, now this is the one that skeezed me out. They also found an igloo cooler... Okay, and it does, it skeezed me out, but it had nothing to do with the actual murder. But just imagine you're a police officer and you're searching this place and you find a cooler and you're preparing yourself for what might be in it. They opened up the cooler and and nestled inside were three of Erica's gigantic snakes, like all curled up on top of one another. Alive? Alive. And... They said that the snakes, I don't know if they were just like cold, so they were like hibernating or something, but they said that the snakes were all more than three and a half inches thick and between five and six feet long. I don't even like seeing those big snakes at the zoo. Echo doesn't like them either. Whenever we go into like the reptile section, she's like, no. She goes, no, no. Girl after my own heart, like I can handle like rodents. I'm like fine with tarantulas. I will hold a tarantula. It can crawl up and down my body. Tarantulas are like furry and cute though. They're very cute. I'll take a spider. Whatever. It's just snakes. And then like thinking about them all like squiggly on top of each other. And it being as tall as you? No, thank you. Somebody told me back in like 2010 or something, this story about a girl who was like obsessed with her snake. She had this pet snake she loved. 
And she used to sleep with it at night and it would like curl up next to her because obviously she was warm. Jesse. <laughs> it gets worse. It Where gets did worse. someone tell you this story? In Hellflay. And so she slept with this snake and it curled up next to her because her body heat kept it warm. And the snake started behaving very weirdly. It stopped eating. It was like stretching out alongside her. It was just behaving differently. So she took it to the vet. This was a very, very large snake. And the vet said that she had to immediately stop sleeping with her snake because it was fasting and stretching out so it could make sure it could accommodate her body because it was going to eat her. (laughs) That's what you get for sleeping with your fucking snake. With your huge-ass snake, with your anaconda. Only one kind of anaconda belongs in that bed, folks. Are you talking about dick? Yeah, obviously. (laughs) I wasn't being subtle. Yeah, so that's like an, it has to be like an urban legend because that was like a friend of a friend story, but. A friend of a friend who slept with this other friend's friend friend. (laughs) Yeah, one of those. Oh my gosh. But yeah, just to go back to that, disgusting, disgusting. I don't want to open an igloo cooler full of snakes, huge ass snakes. No, thank you. So obviously at this point, Jeannie and Joshua are no longer alive. They know this. So they need to put the screws to Erica and VJ and hope that maybe they can get them to turn on one another or somebody is going to feel guilty and admit the truth. Because what they really want to do is obviously put these killers away, but also recover their remains for their family members. Yeah. So BJ is interviewed and he does not say shit. The only thing that they said he repeatedly said was, ask my wife, why don't you talk to my wife? She knows, don't talk to me. And then he requested a lawyer and he just totally dummied up. So he just shut up and nobody knew his side of the story until he went to trial. He didn't talk at all. Well, Erica, on the other hand, she sang like a canary. So Erica said that she would tell the police absolutely everything if they would wipe out the burglary charge against her. And the district attorney was like, "Uh, yeah, sure, you tell me about your murder and we won't charge you for burglary. Yeah. Why are you focused on the burglary charge? Do you not realize that you're going to get charged with first-degree murder? I don't know if she does realize that, actually. I don't think she did. They're like, sure, babe, like, go off. Like, tell us everything about this murder and we won't charge you with burglary. So Erica said that she was snorting Xanax all night as well as drinking heavily so that there's some holes in her memory. So she's like, yeah, some of the times I was like, I kind of like blacked out for a moment, then I came to again. So it's, it's a little foggy. But she said that she recalled entering the penthouse around 2.30 in the morning with BJ, Jeannie, and Josh. The three of them, BJ, Jeannie, and Josh, all started smoking pot. And Erica doesn't like pot. She prefers Xanax. So she said that they were all having a good time until Erica realized that somebody had stolen her small red coach handbag. Yes, and so I guess this was like a very small little handbag that she kept like inside of another larger pocketbook. But this was where she kept her valuables. This is where she kept... Her cash, her cards, drugs. her drugs, and I guess her grandmother had given her a $10,000 two-carat canary diamond ring, and that was supposedly also in this red coach handbag that she had lost. 
So it's missing. She's obviously on a lot of drugs. And she is now remembering that Jeannie had gone upstairs to change into her swimsuit. There's a discrepancy in the stories. There's uh, one version where they all left the club together. They went to Jeannie and Joshua's condo first to pick up swimsuits and marijuana. And then they walked down the beach together, went into the condo together. And there's another version of the story where BJ wasn't with the other three. They went back to get their stuff and BJ went back to their condo and then realized he couldn't get in at that time because Erica had the key so that he took a rest in the Jeep while they were getting the stuff. Okay. So there's two different stories here. Regardless, Erica says they all were up there at 2.30. At one point, Jeannie had gone upstairs to change. So now she's thinking that Jeannie stole from her. Well, she was upstairs getting changed. I see where this is going. So she doesn't know what to do. She's looking all over for this. They're still downstairs laughing, drinking, smoking pot, having a good time, have no idea that she's losing her mind. Erica actually calls 911. Now, this is interesting. There's theories about when this call actually took place. So... She calls 911 and she has recorded saying that there were strangers in her house and they don't know where she is. They don't know that she's making this call and that she thinks there's going to be a robbery. And then the dispatcher connects her to the police department and she hangs up. So that's the entirety of this call. Now, the police believe that when she made that call, Joshua and Jeannie might have already been dead, and she was trying to set up some sort of situation, alibi or something, in case the neighbors called and cops showed up. She could say that they were robbed, maybe. So there's some question about when this 911 call actually happened. But if you go along with Erica's story, she said, that she called 911, she was disconnected, she did not know what to do, she was freaking out, so she went downstairs and she told BJ that she had just called 911. He was like, why the hell would you do that? And she's like, because my purse with all of our drugs and all of our money is missing, it's gone. I didn't move it, you didn't move it, so. And so she said at that point, he went berserk and he's like, give me the gun I gave you. And she's like, get your own gun. But his gun was in the Jeep. So he's like, no, get your gun and give it to me. And she said that she was saying, no, no, don't do this. It's fine. And he got her gun. And then holding Erica's gun to basically Joshua's head, he demanded that they strip naked, that they take off all their clothes. And this was because he was shouting at them that they could not steal from him. They weren't going to steal from him. They weren't going to rip him off. And so he wanted them to strip naked so he could see where they were hiding, whatever they had. The red. Yeah, the red coach bag or whatever was inside of it. Of course, they had nothing. They're so confused at this point about how in seconds this like totally fun evening took such a crazy turn. So Jeannie is shaking and crying. She's like, we didn't take your stuff. I don't even know what you're talking about. You know, we'd never do that. We were with you all night. Like we paid your bus fare. We all had drinks together. Like what? We would never do that. And so she's crying. And Joshua was repeatedly like looking at BJ and being like, why are you doing this? What is going on? Why are you doing this to us? So at that point, they're naked and they're scared and they're like begging, like, just let us get our clothes on and let us leave. Like, just like, let us leave. You know, we don't have the stuff. 
And Erica says at that point, BJ ordered them to go into the bathroom. Now, she says she was saying, like, don't do it. Stop it. Like, we can still, like, get out of this. So Josh and Jeannie were instructed to go to the bathroom. And they're like, they ran ahead. Like, Josh got Jeannie in the bathroom. And they slammed the door and they locked it. So Erica said at this point she ran downstairs because it's a two-level penthouse to try and see if she could find the allegedly stolen stuff. Yeah. So that she could bring it back up to BJ and before he did anything else, she'd be like, no, it's here. Don't worry. You don't have to hurt them. She could have also just lied and said, it's here. Yeah. And also she obviously recovers this purse later after all of this is said and done. But the her story seems like a lie because she said that she found it underneath a bed, but it was like one of those kind of hotel type beds that only has like yeah. an inch and a half. Like there's no place for something to go under a bed. So she's clearly lying. She's lying about losing this. She's lying about finding it. This whole thing is sketchy, but obviously they didn't take it. So she said that she was downstairs looking for this purse when she heard gunshots. She said then that she heard the sound of BJ kicking down the door and she ran upstairs. At that point, he had kicked the door in and open. And she witnessed Joshua saying again, why are you doing this? Stop this. And BJ said to Joshua, See you later, mother effer, and then shot him. Wow. And then he wasn't quite dead at that point, so BJ shot him again. And Jeannie had at that point crawled into a fetal position and was crying and whimpering. Of course, she's terrified. And according to Erica, somehow BJ, the expert marksman, missed shooting Jeannie, which is point blank at his feet. So some people think that Erica was actually the one who had the gun at this point. Like he shot Joshua and he's like, your turn, essentially, because it doesn't seem like he would miss in this situation. And she said then he was frustrated and angry. So then he held the gun like right up to Jeannie's back and ended up shooting her a few more times, like through the, what would go through her like lungs and chest area. Horrible. Yeah. So Erica also confusingly said that there was so much blood in the bathroom, more blood than she thought, and that she thought BJ also might have slit Jeannie's throat. She just kind of like throws that out there. So the cops do not believe that this is how things went down, the way she is talking about it. And this is because the bathroom window went out to the balcony and they found Erica's fingerprints all around the outside of the window. They were thinking that when they took off and hid in the bathroom, Yep, that Erica went out to the other side to tell BJ where to shoot because they were hiding in the bathroom and he was shooting through the door. Yeah, yeah. I figured because they had to get a new door. Exactly. Which is like terrifying from Josh and Jeannie's point of view. Yeah. So they have, they're on either side of them. And later on it comes out because Erica changes her story, of course, that Jeannie was screaming for help because this was a condominium and she thought maybe she could scream out the window. It was towards the beach. It was a pretty quiet night. We're talking at like past three in the morning. So she was screaming and it seems like it would have been Erica's been trying to get her to shut up. So we're going to get more into whether the things that Erica says are true or not. I think some of them are. Obviously, there's a seed of truth here and how things went down. But this is the part where it gets really graphic and disturbing when she starts talking about BJ dismembering this couple. So this is where the trigger warning is probably like a minute to skip forward. 
So Erica claimed that BJ instructed her to get garbage bags stripped naked himself, I guess not to get any blood on his garments, and that he began to dismember Joshua and Jeannie's bodies. At some point, and she's on all this Xanax, so she says like time was weird and she was like in and out of stuff. BJ called Erica into the bathroom where she claims that he was holding the heads of Jeannie and Joshua while sporting a massive erection. According to Erica, he demanded that she take a picture of the scene to send to his buddies. What? Yes. Now, she said she took this picture, but no photo has ever been recovered from any of their belongings or camera, which it's like a long story about like some of their stuff went into a storage unit like that belonged. It was like, it's like very convoluted. It was like a storage unit that belonged to her grandmother, but it was on her parents' property. So it was like all of these like hoops and jumps you had to get to, to get the stuff that was in the storage unit. And then they didn't end up finding this camera after all, which was the evidence. So we cannot corroborate whether the story is true because they never found the But photo. why would you ever make something that horrific up? It gets worse, Andy. It gets worse. Like, this is carrying on. If you stop for a second and you don't want to hear this, keep going because keep skipping. Because we're getting into more disturbing imagery and necrophilia. Erica claimed then that BJ actually had sex with Jeannie's headless body and made her watch. Erica went on to say, as they packed the body parts into the garbage bags, that BJ asked her if she would cook part of the flesh from one of the legs so that they could eat it for dinner. And Erica said, absolutely not. So they're interviewing her when she's telling them this. And they said, okay, well, did he end up eating any of their flesh? And she goes, not to my knowledge. And she said, not to my knowledge when they asked her if he had drank any of their blood. So she was like, I don't know. Maybe he did it when I wasn't there. So is she terrified of him now? Well, that's what her defense is going to be. That's what she's going to say, that she was terrified of him after this. She said that they then proceeded to pack the garbage bags that had the body parts inside of them in their Jeep. And then they drove to two different dumpsters in Delaware to throw the body parts out. They also had thrown out most of Jeannie and Joshua's personal items, but BJ had made her keep the IDs and some of the bullets in her purse. There was one bullet that he, she said he had dug out from Joshua's torso. And she said these were his trophies. And Erica said that she was drugged up at this point. She just kept taking Xanax throughout this experience and she was terrified of BJ. But the photographic evidence of the rest of their week tells a very different story. The police recovered photos that they had taken or they had given to strangers to take of them, of them eating crabs, drinking beers, playing miniature golf after the murder. After the murder, looking happy. She got a tattoo of a cobra and they interviewed the tattoo artist and he said that they were like, totally loved up, normal, like dumb kind of drunk vacation couple that he sees all the time, that she was like talking about her husband and seemed really into him, that did not seem scared at all. And furthermore, in these pictures, I believe in at least some of these pictures, I'm not sure of all of them, Erica was wearing a ring on a necklace and the ring 
was Joshua Ford's. So whose trophy is that, Erica? Oh, my God. So Erica's story is dubious, but the police really wanted to make an arrest. And even more than that, they wanted to be able to return Joshua and Jeannie's remains to their families. So Erica's very good and expensive defense attorney made a really good deal. If Erica could direct the police to the dumpsters and they actually find the remains— and she testifies against her husband because she's going to have to give up marital privilege, then she would essentially get off with a slap on the wrist. What? Yeah. Like, they want BJ very badly. They want to return the bodies to the loved ones. They're saying, you'll get a really good deal if you do all these things. But they didn't highlight what the deal exactly is. Yes. A condition of the deal is that she take a polygraph to prove that she's telling the truth and that her only involvement was cleaning up the scene and helping him get rid of the body parts and that she did not actively participate in the killing herself. And that's very important because they're not going to give a deal to a murderer. Mm -hmm. Or an attempted murderer. Exactly. So the police were able, miraculously, to recover some of Joshua and Jeannie's remains because the dumpsters had already been emptied and they were in a huge landfill. But really fortunate that they managed to receive some of their remains. At least there was some part of them. It's easier to prosecute and there was something for the families to bury. From one of the torsos, they were also able to recover a spent bullet that matched those that Erica and BJ had kept as trophies. There's also more evidence here. So this is looking very good for Erica. All she has to do is pass a polygraph and testify against BJ. And there was a possibility like she could get off completely scot-free. They didn't say exactly what this good deal was going to be, but it was on the table that she could get immunity and walk away potentially. So before they do the polygraph, they do an interview with her. And this is just something to get out all the facts. Like she has to tell her whole story before she gets on the polygraph. So they know what questions to ask and where to do the stress points, where she's telling the story and making sure that those particular areas are truthful. So she's not even on the polygraph yet. She's just in the pre-interview. And this is where it goes to hell for Erica and her defense attorney. Now, her defense attorney thinks that her story is totally legit. So he's like, you just go in there and you tell the truth. That's the truth. You already told it. You tell it again. You stick to your story because it's the truth. Yep. Just do that for us. So... Number one, Erica and her defense attorney found out that a second couple had come forward to say that only days after Jeannie and Joshua were murdered, they were also lured over to the condo and also accused of stealing Erica's purse. But they had managed to escape with their lives. How? I'll get into that later. I'm going to talk about it during BJ's trial. Wow. So clearly Erica's story of being terrified is bullshit. This is their MO. This is now they're trying to set up another double murder. And Erica's attorney had absolutely no knowledge of this encounter whatsoever. When he had asked her, like, what do I need to know? She never mentioned that they had had another couple to the condo. Of course she didn't. So he is pissed at his client at this point. But he still says, okay, well, this doesn't prove that Erica participated in the initial murders. So the deal is still potentially on. That is, until she reiterates what happened during the night of the crime again. And this time, Erica's presentation of these murders is different. She said that when Jeannie and Joshua ran into the bathroom, Jeannie was screaming for help and she was being very, very loud. 
And BJ turned to her and asked her what she wanted him to do. And this time she admitted she said, just fucking do it. Does she not realize that that makes her a murderer as well? Okay. Mm, She said afterwards, like, wait, do you have me up for murder now? They're like, yeah. Because they asked her to clarify. They're like, when you said just fucking do it, what did you mean by that? And she said, I meant just kill them. She says that straight up. But she doesn't process that that means that she's guilty. Of the murder. deal's off. She has no idea. She's just like, I'm just telling the truth. My attorney just told me to tell the truth. And it's like, honey, that's a different truth than you told before. So she went on to say that after BJ shot Jeannie, he asked Erica to get down and cut her to make sure she was dead. And Erica said that she leaned down and she started slicing Jeannie up. She said on the record, I was surprised how much pressure it took to cut the skin since I had never cut someone before. I cut her twice like this. And at that point, the person questioning her was like, was she dead or alive when you started cutting her? And she said, I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't. I mean, it's she could be alive. She could be alive. And that's the point is that that means like not only did you say that and compel him to murder, you also might have physically murdered her. She also had insinuated that the cut was somewhere else on Jeannie's body. But later on, she's saying what BJ says to her. And he says that after he dismembered the bodies and they were putting them in the dumpster, that he said, whoa, you really did a a number on Jeannie's uh, throat, like to imply that she slit her throat. Oh, my God. Yeah. So the district attorney is like, all right, deal's off. You just described two different ways in which you were an active participant in these murders. So there is no deal for you. You're no. done here. Yeah. The defense attorney had to be like, uh. The defense attorney was so fucked. He's like interviewed for the book too. And he's like, we had a great deal going. This is what I believed happened. And then I get into this pre-polygraph interview and I am, my whole case is blown. Everything I thought was different. He's scrambling. He has like no idea what his defense is going to be at this point. I feel like at that point, you should be able to back away. I know. (laughs) Yeah. It gets even worse too, because I don't even know how this came up. But at one point she turned to the investigators and she said, was Joshua Jewish? She was talking about how cute he was because there was like 20 minutes at Secrets that she might've been in the bathroom with him or she, he was in the bathroom with her, but they don't know what was happening in the bathroom, whether like, you know, he's doing a line with her. Yeah. Like at Secrets in the bar, there was like 20 minutes that they were in the bathroom doing something together. They could have just been talking. Who knows? Maybe he was doing a line of Xanax too. Sus though. They were asking her about that 20 minutes, trying to figure out, was that when she was like, ooh, come over. And maybe maybe there was a sexual yeah. intrigue and in having them come over to the place. And she was like, I don't remember. I like think I was blacked out for that part. She's like, but he was cute. So like, I hope so. I hope something happened because he was super cute. And then she stopped and she goes, was he Jewish? And they were like, uh, why does that matter? And she's like, oh, it's just something BJ asked all the time. Like, he was always asking if, when we met people, if I thought they were Jewish. Yeah, because he had a fucking swastika on his chest. Yep. So she said this, and I'm using the most edited language I can because everything about this, every word is offensive. Everything's offensive about this, guys. So pardon my French. Yeah, no, no, no. No, I mean, like, going forward, what she says is that they're like, yeah, why would you ask this? And she goes, matter-of-factly. BG did not like N-words or Jews, and she's using all the real words here, 
or people with disease. He believed R words and cancer people pollute the gene pool. How can you say that many offensive things in one sentence? Oh my gosh. I mean, there was another word that I just completely omitted because I didn't even know how to hint at it. It's unbelievable. Now, this is so unbelievable. This is so offensive. And the things that she claims he did to those bodies is so disgusting that some people think that Erica was purposely trying to make BJ look like a monster. Like, who would say these things? Who would do those things to the corpses? Only a monster. So some people say that maybe he did not do these things. And she is trying to make him look like such a monster. And that's why she was scared of him. And that's why she had to go along with what he said, because he would have done these things to her. Yeah. But at the same time, dude has a swastika tattoo. Again, the size of my hand on his chest. He has snakes named HIV and Hitler. Like, I don't know if I'm going to put it past him. No, definitely not. Seriously, whoa. I mean, I it just, the more, the deeper you get into it, the deeper the trash level of these human beings gets. In any case, what was good for the gander was now good for the goose because first-degree murder charges were filed against Erica, just like they had been against her husband. While BJ continued to maintain his silence, Erica was a busy little bee in prison writing a ton of letters to various people, like friends from high school, family members, more people, The contents of these letters were all monitored by the prison, of course, which is kind of like it's the whole thing. Like, they're going to go through your letters. They're going to listen to your phone calls. It's no more free speech. Yeah. How do you not know this? Yeah, there's no more uh, privacy. You've lost your freedom of privacy. M. William Phelps has the contents of all of these letters in his book, and she wrote one to a friend in which she wrote about fantasizing that Joshua, Joshua, the man she had helped kill and dismember, that Joshua was her boyfriend and that she had this daydream that they were together at a club and that Janie and BJ didn't exist. It was the two of them and that they were in love and that he was telling her how pretty she was and how much he cared for her. Okay. Yep. So you you killed him. So you don't get your imaginary boyfriend. So having realized that you know, imaginary boyfriend of the guy she murdered was off the table. And it seems like BJ was not speaking to her at this point. I think probably because of what she's saying to the police. Erica needed a new boyfriend. So she started to write to another guy who was in prison. I think she met him on some prison pen pal program. And this guy is pseudonymed Jimmy in Phelps's book. And (laughs) Phelps has these letters. Guys, The shit that she wrote to this man is beyond gross. (laughs) I mean, she had to want the authorities to be reading these letters because I don't know why you would put this shit down in paper. It was like hardcore erotica. I wanted to do the lame love letter masterpiece theater, like when we read these cringeworthy letters out loud. And I could not because it was pornographic. Like we would be flagged for pornography if I read any of these letters. Well, we should do a Patreon bonus then. (laughs) Okay, well, I'll tell you a couple, like, of the more cringeworthy lines. Patreon porno. (laughs) Patreon. I think we'll get a whole different audience that aren't there for the right things. (laughs) (laughs) But they have to pay, so. (laughs) I'll say Patreon or OnlyFans. You decide. So she, she was trying to 
write to him some sexual scene about what he's doing to her and whatever she's doing to him. And she wrote, yes, I do have a beautiful, plump vagina. I was like, plump? I'm never going to look at the word plump ever again. What are we talking about? Like a nice like chicken for roasting? Yeah, or like a peach? <laughs> I would never put like plump Leave together your with vagina. vagina out of plump. <laughs> yeah, and then this one's also so cringeworthy. So Erica is white and Jimmy is black. And she refers to his penis in every letter as if it's its own person. She calls his penis Mr. Chocolate, as in tell Mr. Chocolate that I will attend to him 24-7 at his request. And you know what's crazy is that Erica's parents were sending this guy money orders. Her parents were 100% supporting her. They believed that BJ got their innocent daughter involved in all of this and were sending this guy money and were going to like support them when they got out of jail to be together. Does she have a get out of jail date? No. Oh, okay. No, she does not. <laughs> they thought that she was going to get acquitted, of got course. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay. They now know, though, that that wasn't the case, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So let's move on instead of Erica's fake boyfriend and his talking penis to Erica's actually legally wed spouse and murderous partner in crime, BJ, as BJ's trial began on April Fool's Day, 2003. Now, because BJ had only spoken to his attorneys, nobody knew what he was going to say. There's no, like, leaked letters. There was no talking to the media. Everybody knew going in what Erica's story was, which is that her husband was a psychopath and she was terrified of him. No one knew what BJ was going to say. So he did get on the stand and testify on his own behalf. BJ claimed that while he had agreed to keep the party going that night, he had gone back to the Rainbow Condominium. That's where their penthouse was where he and Erica were staying, while Erica went with Jeannie and Josh to the Atlantis so they could grab their swimsuits and pot. And he said that when he reached the room, he realized he didn't have the key and Eric had it. So at that point, like I said, this is the he said, she said, he went down to their unlocked Jeep that was down in the parking lot and he was exhausted from a night of drinking. He had drank a bunch of Long Island iced teas because of course this guy would drink Long Island iced teas. Yeah. And he said that he fell asleep in the back of the Jeep. And it was ostensibly to wait for them. And they were supposed to like wake him up so he could go upstairs when they got there. But he said that he only woke up when a frantic Erica started shaking him and she was shaken and she was screaming at him to wake up and asking him where he was and why he hadn't been with her. And at that point, she told him that she had been ripped off by Jeannie and Josh and that she had killed Jeannie and Josh by herself with her gun. Uh, I mean, it tracks, like, in regards to how she was acting, like, yeah, shaking him and waking him up. But I don't know if someone who's, like, all zannied out can, like, kill two adult humans. Well, yeah, we're going to get into why this doesn't seem feasible. BJ said that the only thing he had done wrong was to help his wife cover up her crimes instead of going to the police. Like he had this medic training and he could look at these bodies like they were slabs of meat and not humans. And he said, we got to dismember them. We have to take them apart. We have to get rid of them to protect you. So he says that that's what happened. So he's like, I fully admit that I volunteered the idea of dismembering them and I did that, but I did not actually kill them. 
The prosecution called BS on this. They said, number one, the bathroom door had indeed been broken down. And Erica, I don't even know if she weighed 100 pounds. Like by the time she went to the trial, I think she was like 98 pounds. So she is little. They're like, there's no way she could have broken down this door with her body. Absolutely no way. And it was broken down. No, that sounds crazy. She's like 100 pounds. Yeah. And number two, the prosecution had the testimony of a 22-year-old woman named Melissa Sealing, who had nearly become another one of the Sifrit's victims. So on Wednesday night, after they had murdered Joshua and Jeannie on Saturday night, the Sifrits had gone back to Secrets. And there they had met a young man who I believe is pseudonymed. I don't know if Todd is his real name, but they call him Todd in the book. So let's just go with Todd. So this guy, Todd, and they end up getting completely hammered, all three of them. So just before midnight, the trio got kicked out of the bar. And it wasn't just because they were drunk, but because BJ was trying to pick the lock of the ATM inside the club. Oh, my God. Whoa. Okay. So when they were kicked out, Erica apparently took her gun out of her purse and started screaming at the bouncer that she was going to kill him. So somehow they didn't get arrested. BJ pulled her over to a car. And I don't know if it was Todd's car or their car, but they drove away together in a car and somebody who was driving was not supposed to be driving. And at this point, they got a flat tire, but they were all too drunk to change it. So Todd called his friend Melissa, this is the witness, to help him. So Melissa came, she helped them change the tire. She was a little worried about her friend Todd because he was like wanting to continue hanging out with these people. And she's like, oh, he's really drunk. So they were like, well, let us thank you. Come to this bar that was nearby and we'll grab you a drink. So she gets one drink with them, but it's clear they're really drunk. And she was like, I think we should all just like head home. Yeah. And they're like, no, like, can you just follow us in your car? Because we're really worried that something's going to happen. And with the flat tire. Well, yeah, we're worried about the flat tire. Also, BJ was saying something like, if like we get pulled over by the cops, my wife might go ape shit. I don't want her to like shoot a cop or something. Like, can you just follow and make sure we get safely home? And then when she did that, he jumped out and he's like, okay, my wife's passed out. Can you help me carry her up? Like Todd's not in a position to carry her up. So Melissa's like, okay. So weird. Yeah. So she was like, okay. So Erica seemed really out of it. So she helps him get her up. And then as soon as they walk into the apartment, she's like, Bing, totally coherent, seemingly sober. She goes from like, I can't even walk to like, I'm fine. Oh my God. So Melissa's like, that's weird. But she said the apartment was really gorgeous. Like she had never been in a place that size. It was beautiful. And Erica was like, oh, she was like, wow, this place looks nice. And Erica's like, oh, do you want a tour? And she's like, sure. So she's like, okay, this is weird, but this is a really nice place. So they like do a tour. They walk around. And I guess like Todd and BJ were drinking beers. Everything seems normal. Everything seems like it's going just fine. And then all of a sudden, Erica said that she lost her purse. So they're all, she's like, guys, you have to look for my purse. It's really important that I find it. So Melissa's like, oh, I'll help you. Like, she's like, I'll I'll help you find it, whatever. They're like, well, maybe it's still in the Jeep. But she's like, no, because she used her keys to get in. So she had her purse. And like, they're trying to figure it out. And then she hears... Erica say to BJ, Beej, we need to find my purse. Those people, their IDs are in my purse. So Melissa thought that that was really weird. She's like, okay, what is that? What is that about? That seems strange. But she really knew something wasn't right when she's looking around the apartment looking for this purse. 
And she sees that the bathroom door is off the hinges and it looks like there's bullet holes in it. So she's like, okay, I thought something was weird and now I know something's weird. I gotta go. Yeah, and soon, just like with Jeannie and Joshua, now Melissa is getting accused of taking Erica's purse. So BJ got a gun out and according to Melissa, who testified to this, said the following to Melissa, if you're ripping us off, we've had other people try ripping us off. If you've ripped us off as the other people who are here, I'll do the same damn thing to you that I did to them. And then he basically stared at the bullet hole in the bathroom door because they were all near there and was like, kind of like looking at it like, yeah, check that out. These people, he continued, were bad people. I'm ridding the earth of bad people. They came into my place and they ripped me off. No more will they do that. BJ said that they would die the same way as the other couple had, BJ implied, if it turned out that they were thieves. So she's like, holy shit, we are totally screwed. And at that point, he's like, so you better, you know, essentially find it. And what happened was that BJ had grabbed a cushion from the couch and pulled the purse out and was like, oh, look, I found it. And she's like, okay. And she's like, it's really weird because I like looked there. I know I looked there. And then essentially, I think that they went back outside and he said something about like, oh, do you want to like settle down with some pot? Those other people left it here for us. And she's like, I'm good. And he's like, oh, I'm going to go have sex with my wife or something. And she's like, that's my cue to leave. Bye. Oh my God. Todd was like either passed out or he didn't want to leave or something. So she just left. And then she was almost home and she got a call from him. And he's like, why did you leave me? I don't want to be here with these people. And she's like, okay. He's like, well, come pick me up. And she's like, I'm not going up there. You can come down and wait for me. I will pick you up outside, but I'm not getting out of the car. And they survived. By the hair of their chinny chin chin. If BJ decided to stop the game, like he was like, oh, look, your purse is here. Like, we're not going to play this game anymore. Or... They didn't put up enough of a fight or I don't know why they got to survive and Jeannie and Joshua did not. But this certainly does not sound like a man who had no knowledge of these murders and had nothing to do with it. Well, the defense argued that actually because BJ was there was the reason that Melissa and her friends survived because they said BJ was the one that found the purse. So BJ clearly controlled his wife, his murderous wife. It was when he had not been there when he had been asleep in the Jeep, when his homicidal wife had actually gone through with killing. But when he was there, it hadn't happened because he had put a stop to it. So that's what the defense is arguing. In closing, the defense reminded the jury that the gun used to kill Jeannie and Joshua was Erica's. The IDs had been found in Erica's purse. That it was Erica who was wearing Joshua's ring around her neck as a trophy. Erica, Erica, Erica. Now, well, I think that BJ is guilty of sin. I can also see how each side has compelling arguments as far as like saying that the evidence says it's all Erica and they're saying he's like this really good Navy SEAL guy. I'm not sure how much of the swastika stuff came up in the the trial. So I just feel like when it's two people that are blaming each other, they both have to be prosecuted in the same way because there's no piece of truth from either of them that can be matched up. There's instances where I think we've covered killer couples where there have been like clear things that have shown that one person was more guilty than the other or one person killed and the other just covered up. But when it's 
both of them having these crazy different stories that don't line up at all, it's like how can they even tell what is real out of either of them? Well, that's why it's hard to be a jury member. So do you want to make a guess about which way the jury went? I mean, if I was on the jury, I would have outwopped both of them. Well, after 14 hours of deliberation, the jury found BJ not guilty of Joshua's murder, but guilty of murder in the second degree for Jeannie's murder. And he was also found guilty of being an accessory after the fact. I don't understand that. I don't think many people do. Obviously, Joshua's family was devastated. Horrified. Even the judge thought that the jury made a bad call. At sentencing, Judge Weinstein said, This is one of the few instances in my 20 years in which I have disagreed with the jury's verdict in a case. Then he stared directly at BJ and said, You're a butcher. A butcher, he shouted. You cut these people up for no reason. If not for the masterful job of your defense team, you would probably be facing a life sentence. The judge then gave BJ the maximum sentence he possibly could impose, which was 38 years. And he said that if he was still alive when BJ was up for parole, he wanted to be notified so he could tell the board how cruel and vicious these crimes were and that BJ should not get out. Whoa. Yeah. So will justice be served at least with Erica? Let's find out. Her trial started only a couple months after BJ's in June of 2003. Erica's defense team argued that Erica was an abused and insecure wife who had been brainwashed into going along with her violent and menacing husband's criminal activity and sick fantasies. The prosecution said not bloody likely. They showed pictures of Erica yucking it up in the days after the murders, enjoying clubs and eating crabs, getting a tattoo. Melissa once again testified that in no way did Erica ever seem controlled or scared during that terrifying time at the condo. Yeah. And there was, of course, all of the evidence that BJ's defense team had presented. The gun that was hers, the IDs, Joshua's ring being in Erica's possession. In the end, Erica did not get off as easy as her estranged husband did. The jury found her guilty of first-degree murder— of Joshua Ford, and guilty of second-degree murder of Jeannie Crutchley. Joshua's brother, Mark, who was twice traumatized by horrific murder in less than a year, his daughter and his brother, had this to say in his victim impact statement. It's judgment day, Mark said after introducing himself. It is time for you to pay the consequences, Erica. Today is the day that this honorable court holds you accountable for your murderous acts. Erica, today is the first day of your lifetime walk down prison's memory lane. You're going to have lots and lots of quality cell time. In prison, you will experience the inner panic and terror of loneliness and isolation. Erica, you are 25 years old and you have a life expectancy of another 50 years, of which you are going to have plenty of time to think about what you did to Josh and Jeannie. And M. William Phelps said that Erica would not look at him. She was, like, shaking her head. She looked pissed off. She was, like, not handling this respectfully at all. So Mark went on, Erica, here's some reality. Benjamin, that's BJ, won't be your cellmate. And your backup death row husband won't be stopping by for visits either. 
you're going to be locked up in a five by nine cell, hopefully painted purple, which is, I guess, that they had introduced evidence about her crazy, jealous nature. And she had thrown a fit about anything ever being purple because it had been BJ's ex's favorite color. Oh, my God. Yeah. Without a tanning booth and with no beach to sunbathe on, and you cannot bring your three pet snakes with you. I don't think they will be serving crabs and cold beer. Erica, your special treatment time is over. So again, she wasn't looking at him. And at that point, Mark said loudly, please look at me. Please take a long look at me. Shortly, you will hear Josh and Jeannie's message to you. It's judgment time. Thank you, Your Honor. Oh, that poor man. That takes a lot of strength to address her that way. It seemed like he probably had to. Ugh. So the judge sentenced Erica to life in prison plus 20 years. But we all know by now that life, depending on the state that you're in, doesn't really mean necessarily life in prison. And Erica will be eligible for parole as early as 2024 next year. Whoa. I know. I don't get it. BJ was up for parole for the first time early last year, and he was denied. If he continues to not receive parole, he will still be released officially in late 2029 or early 2030. Whoa. Yep. And the couple officially divorced in 2010. Whoa. That was a crazy case, huh? Terrifying. Totally terrifying. Thank you, Jamie, for bringing this one to our attention. In conclusion, nothing good happens after 2 a.m. Nothing, nothing. And nothing good happens if you're doing hard drugs five out of seven days of the week. Yeah, don't do that either. Yeah. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no poor individual has to open up an igloo cooler full of creepy <laughs> snakes. Bye. Bye, guys. Love ya. Love ya. 